This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Hey, folks, welcome back to our series on how to try a criminal case. I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Tane Kell. And we are now to Section 3, Vordire and Jury Selection. Now, before everybody starts screaming at me, I've, I've heard some lawyers and I've heard some reporters say it's not pronounced Vordire, it's pronounced Voidir. I know that. But I was trained at Georgia State College of Law by uh, Colonel Lanier in my civil procedures class, and he said Vordire, and I, by golly, I said Vordire because he was a colonel in the Marine Corps, and they have to be right, correct? Absolutely. So we have now to- <laughs> we've told the jury that we've had a bunch of oaths. Here comes another one. We give them the, the voir dire oath, and we have them promise that all the answers are going that, that they give in the case are going to be true. I usually allow the the lawyers to introduce themselves. Frankly, this is a practical reason. It sort of breaks the ice. It lets them talk. It lets my court reporter check levels. It, it kind of makes sure that everybody's on the same page before we kick off. I let them introduce themselves and their parties and the people they represent or who might be at their table. And then I try to outline the case to the jury. I try my best to read the indictment. But when you have a 42-count indictment that seems to charge the same crime or a very similar crime, except that it's as to a different victim 12 times, I may not read every word. Do you read every word? I do in the uh, same way, unless it's a very lengthy indictment. If it's 10 counts or less, I would say my, my rule of thumb is I read the indictment verbatim to the jurors. Otherwise, I generally say what the counts are of the indictment, what each count is. I may say armed robbery, three counts, uh, you know, commission of a felony uh, while in possession of a firearm, two counts, something like that on the lengthier um, indictments. And I tell them, when if you're selected as a juror, you'll have a copy of this indictment in the jury room for you to review in its entirety. So, Tane, the law says, and it changed a little bit a couple years ago, that said that you cannot hear a case unless you, if, excuse me, you cannot hear a case if you are related to the parties within the third degree. Of consanguinity. Or what affinity. A great word. Or affinity. And so I'm like, what does that mean? I am not really good with that cousin twice removed thing. Neither and, you know, how all that. that my, if, I, if you knew what my family tree looks like, you'd understand why I'm not good with that. There might be some twisted roots somewhere. There might be some straight branches and there might be some crooked ones. So I try really hard. I, if I don't understand it, some members of the jury absolutely understand it. Some don't. So I try my best to define what within the third degree is. And then I come back and I tell them, now, if you are related within, to any of the following people within the third degree, as I have just defined it, because I just went through the whole thing about parents and grandparents and in-laws and outlaws, and then raise your hand. And then there's some things that are, there are some cases out there that say that you need to qualify the jurors 
to the prosecutor who's listed on the indictment and any law enforcement involved in the case. Now, I don't ever know who's involved in the case, and I don't usually do that. Sometimes I will look to the prosecutor to determine if, if, if this is one of these cases where it looks like they their list of witnesses has 10 and 12 law enforcement officers. Sometimes I'll look to them to do that, but not always. Um, I asked the statutory qualifying questions. Now, we talked about this the other day. Let's what, just go over those right quick, just, okay. to, just for the folks. Are any members of the panel under the age of 18, not a citizen of the United States, a convicted felon whose civil rights have not been restored? And then I always ask if anybody is unable to effectively communicate the English language. Now, I'll be honest with you. The statutory questions are, are different. These are the sort of preliminary qualifying questions. Right. What do you do with someone who, I mean, I always say to myself, if they can't effectively communicate in English, how in the world can they answer this question? Good question, Wade. It seems that they that most people who really struggle seem to know that's the question they need to raise their hand <laughs> on for some reason. But what do you do when you go through Vardir and, and you realize there is somebody that probably is not raising their hands to all the different questions because they have no idea what's going on? Sure. Um, the first thing I do is let the lawyers ask whatever questions they need to ask about that because generally the lawyers are picking up on the same thing you are. This person doesn't seem to um, understand what we're asking. One of the ways that I figure that out too is the very first thing that I ask the jurors to do, and it's really certainly not something that's required and, and many people wouldn't even want to do this, but I actually go through each juror one at a time uh, and ask each pan person in the panel one at a time and ask them to tell us, uh, what their occupation is, uh, what their marital status is, whether they have children, and if they do, what ages they are, and um, if they are married, what their spouse's occupation is, and I get them to tell us what area of the county we live in. Because that information, first of all, is important for the lawyers to know anyway, and secondly, it gets the jurors comfortable with answering questions before the lawyers start to ask questions. It's so funny you say that. We actually have a sheet in all three counties that we pass around among the jurors, ask those same questions that ask one more, how long have you lived in the county? Yeah. I don't know why we care about that, but we do. Apparently, but it's weird. There's no law on that. No, there's, not, there's at not all. a law anywhere on that. No, it's it, well, it was a question that was getting asked by the lawyers and general questions anyway. And so we started doing it. I started doing it. It's really an icebreaker. It's kind of like what you did just a minute ago. Um, or we're talking about I do it to get the jurors talking because it does seem to relieve the tension in the room. It takes 15 minutes maybe to go through all your drawers and have them ask those six questions. I have them up on a board or now we have them up on the video screen in front of the uh, the jury I mean, and, the, and they just go through and answer the questions. But that's the reason for doing it. But that gives you a good insight into how people speak, you know, if they seem to be able to have a command of the uh, of the English language or if they have any hearing problems or any kind of other communication problems that really kind of helps. Now, we have asked people, you, we talked earlier about the statutory questions, and these are the statutory questions. Have you, for any reason, formed and expressed an opinion as to the regard of the guilt or innocence of the accused? Have you any prejudice on your mind or bias on your mind, resting on your mind either for or against the accused? Is your mind perfectly impartial between the state and the accused? And what I typically do, I say, well, let me ask this the other way. Is there anybody whose mind is not perfectly impartial between the state and the accused? And then those are the statutory questions. Now, 
I ask if there's anybody who served on the grand jury, because that is a disqualifier if you heard this case as a grand juror. And, and I ask if anybody's been on the grand jury in the last two years, and there's usually nobody who has. I mean, that's, that would be a statistical anomaly. And then are any of you currently not a residents of whichever county we're in? I know Tane only has one county, but we have three. But it's an important question because we have had people in the past who say, oh, yeah, I moved last month, but I, my summons got forwarded to me, so I came on anyway. It happens a lot. Now, folks, we're not going to go through the death penalty qualifying questions, what a lot of people call Witherspoon qualifying questions. We're not going to go through that. That's really not the subject of this podcast or this episode. And we, we, that would be inappropriate to keep jumping back and forth between death penalty cases and non-death penalty cases. Death penalty is a whole different podcast series in and of itself. So you ask the counsel, at least I do, I ask the counsel if everybody appears to be statutory qualified, just in case I forgot a question or something, and they usually both agree. That's when we go through the individual, what we call individual voir dire, where they ask, answer the questions on the sheet. And then we can turn Vordire over to the parties. We always go with the state first since they have the burden of proof. And I am going to confess to you that I am a Vordire nut. I think that at some point we all have conceded that the case should be tried during Vordire. And since they say that at, at, at continuing legal education seminars, all of the lawyers seem to have adopted that as their practice. They want to essentially try the case in voir dire. That's improper in my mind. It, it, you're asking the jurors to prejudge the case by giving them less than all the facts and letting them do witness credibility determinations, etc. But regardless of all of that, I don't, I am proactive in voir dire. So you will see in my outline, there are multiple pages of things that, that you can't ask and things you can't ask. We're not going to go through that today. But I am proactive in that, and I will allow some of the tangential that I know could probably be objected to questions to go because it's just not worth it. But when we start trying to pretrial the case particularly, and we ask the question, do, all, do any of you assume that my client must have done something because he's sitting at this table? That's just an improper question, and I, I cut that off then. And it, I mean, I hate that, but that's, that's the way it is. Do you proactively get involved in that at all? I haven't in the past, although I will be honest with you, I keep in front of me now uh, the list that, that we give out to the judges of proper and improper questions. And basically my rule of thumb is, like you, I'll let them ask a few questions that may be on the borderline, but if somebody's really trying to try the case in voir dire and you know, they're asking a ton of these improper questions, we'll take a break. I'll call them, you know, I, we'll, we'll have a little discussion off the record and I'll say, you know, counsel, here are the things that you can and cannot ask and I'll give you the, the uh, case sites if you need to and, and we'll go to that. I just don't want to waste a lot of time. I feel like that we lose jurors' interest in a very important process if we start making them feel like we're wasting their time. And so I, I, I try not to be invo involved in that too much, but I also don't want the jurors to feel like we're we're. A Abusing them. Folks, I want you to know that you have the right to require the parties to submit written voir dire questions ahead of trial. I have done that once. It was miraculous and how much it allowed me to pare down what questions one lawyer thought were absolutely proper and were absolutely improper. And they were going to ask and we were going to have a back and forth and it was going to be a thing in front of the jury. And so 
understand that you have a right to do that, but you better know it's coming and you better do it in advance and enough time to let the lawyers actually do their work. Be reasonable about that if you decide to do it. Let me tell you one other thing, too, uh, with respect to how you do jury questioning. Um, I do it different than some other judges do it. I don't think my way is necessarily better. It's just the way that I've done it and I'm comfortable with. But the one thing that I do that's different than some is this: there is a statute that says that if the parties request it, you must put 12 jurors in the box and let them ask questions of those 12 jurors at a time. I have actually, over time, asked the parties if they mind if we at least ask all of the general questions of the jury panel as a whole and if they want me to put then put them in the box 12 at a time, we can ask individual questions in the box. It seems to save a little bit of time and make things a little bit more streamlined. But again, that's just my own way of doing it. You can do it. Just understand that there is a statute that says if they request it, you have to put 12 in the box. You know, there's law that says that what that statute allows you to do is exactly what you're doing. You may have not known that, but, but there is some case law that says that that's exactly you have that right to propound the general statutory qualifications to the panel in mass. And then, if requested, move the panel into box of 12 during the trial process. And there's some cases in our that we cite there in the in the outline, and it's 1512-131 in case anybody wants to know what the statute is. Thank now, you. I was flipping the pages madly trying to figure out what statutory section that was, Wade. Um, I, I will also say, uh, once again, we'll repeat, uh, the outline for what we're doing right now is on our website at goodjudgepod.com. And um, this outline in particular is very uh, has a lot of detail in it. And one of the things that's in there is a bunch of case law about what questions counsel can ask and cannot ask. And it is extremely helpful for you judges out there. So you're going to want to take a look at that. Now, let's go over to challenges for cause. Um, there are certain challenges for cause, and, and this is one of the places where Tane and I differ. I tell the lawyers, if we come across an issue that is a challenge for cause and you want to raise it, raise it. And my concern is that that wit and that juror potentially, especially if they are bucking to, to find reasons for them to be dismissed, which some jurors do, potential jurors do, that they will try to infect the panel. And if there is a for cause reason Make it known when it when you believe we've gotten there so that we all can ask questions of that and, and follow-up questions. You don't do it that way. I don't. Um, what I generally tell the lawyers is I would like for you to go through and ask all of the questions that you need to ask of the jurors. Uh, if you need to ask questions outside the presence of the other jurors, all you need to do is tell me that if you believe you've gotten to a point where something's come up and that's an issue. Um, but otherwise, I want you to ask all of your questions of all of the jurors. And then once we finish asking questions of all the jurors, we then take up all the strikes for cause uh, at the same time. And if we need to go back and ask more questions of a juror, we can certainly do that. But at that point in time, I'd like to address those. The reason I do it is really a, a jury convenience reason. At the end of the que of all of the questioning, once we finally mercifully gotten through with that tedious questioning, I send the jury out for a long break. I, I usually break for at least a half an hour. What we do during that break is number one, address strikes for cause, 
And then I give the council their required 15 minutes that you're supposed to give them statutorily to go over the strikes and discuss them with their client. And that is uh, Uniform Superior Court Rule uh, 11, I believe. Is that right? Correct. And uh, and that Uniform Superior Court Rule says you've got to give them at least 15 minutes to go over those strikes before you actually make them do uh, the strikes. So I just do it both at the same time uh, for convenience. Now, if you have a potential for call strike and and the 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 juror is less than obvious in other words i th- i'm not sure i can be impartial you know when when we we go down that path you've got to make sure that you are not coercive and you can't ask them simply the obvious question if i order you to do it will you do it well when you, yeah if when, you order me to do it when you say you you mean the judge intervening the and judge. asking their own questions right yeah right? and and there's some case law on that that says look regardless of how bad you try to rehabilitate this this juror if you are coercive and are deemed coercive by the appellate courts then it's going to be overturned and you that's stupid i'll but, tell you i'll tell you how i address that wade i never ask any questions of the jurors if they re, if the council wants to try to rehabilitate them, they can. If they don't want to go through the machinations of trying to rehabilitate a, a a juror who's expressed some doubt about their ability to be impartial, that's on them. And if it's a strike for cause, it's a strike for cause. Okay. So after we have given them their fifteen minutes and they we have we have reconvened back in the room. Um, the jury is selected. The our, I'm sure everybody does this slightly differently, but the clerk announces to me, Judge, we have a jury. And so the jurors are then called into the box. However everybody does that, it's going to be slightly different depending on your logistics and your room size. But when the names of the jurors have been called and they have come into the box, I always ask the lawyers, lawyers, do you have any objections into the manner in which the jury was selected? Same thing I do, Wade. That's almost verbatim what I ask them. And if you don't do that, there is going to be potentially a right to preserve a Batson or McCollum challenge. And we're not going to talk about Batson and McCollum in full here. We'll do it a future podcast solely on those issues. But they need to raise them here. If you don't, they have up until the time the jury is sworn. So if you choose to swear the jury until tomorrow, because Jeopardy doesn't attach until you swear the jury, right, Judge Kill? No, not not that Jeopardy. Um, Double Jeopardy doesn't attach until you swear the jury. So sometimes I'll wait until after lunch to make sure everybody shows up after lunch and everything's okay. Well, when you do that, you leave the possibility by law that some Batson issues can still be brought up. So it's a catch-22. You've got to have a sense of your lawyers, hopefully, and and what you think of, of the process. But anyway, that's one of those issues that you as a judge have got to weigh out the possibility of a late Batson challenge, or McCollum challenge, to the possibility of jeopardy attaching and then something unavoidable happening and you have to declare a mistrial, and is that something you want to do? Well, nevertheless, though, Wade, I ask that same question as soon as we put the jurors in the box. The first thing I ask them is, counsel, is this the jury that you have selected? I'm sorry. The first question I ask them is, counsel, are there any objections to the selection process um, for for these jurors? And then I say, counsel, is this the jury? Counsel for the state, is this the jury that you've selected? Counsel for the defense, is this the jury that you've selected? And if they both say yes, that's my jury. Now, are you automatically swearing them or are you contemplating? Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Wade. When do you swear the jury? And here's 
here's something that I'll just throw out there. I had always sworn the jury as soon as we got everybody's confirmation that that is the jury that they have selected. And quite frankly, I've stuck with that. But I will tell you a situation that popped up recently, and I was so glad it worked out the way that it did. I had a visiting judge who came in to, t- to try a case for me. He, they went through the entire jury selection process. They finished up at the very end of the day. He was an older senior judge who came in to try the case. He did not swear the jury in. I guess it was just his practice that he didn't. And he said, we'll see you all first thing the next morning. They come in first thing the next morning. And while the jury's still in the jury room, counsel for the state and counsel for the defense say, judge, we have a problem that's come up overnight. Counsel for the state says, judge, I have to confess as we were going over the the evidence and everything for this trial, I realized that there were some key videos that I never turned over to the defense in this case. And the judge said, okay. And, and so the defense said, well, judge, we, you know, we move for mistrial or whatever. And he said, well, there's no need for that. Jeopardy's never attached. I've never sworn the jury will excuse this jury and continue this case, not dismiss it, not, uh, not declare a mistrial. We will continue this case and select a new jury on a different date. No jeopardy attached, no harm, no foul. We rescheduled it for another date. Absolutely. So that that's just that's just one way of looking at it. And folks, that's just one of those things that you haven't even thought of why you do it and we just do it this way and then slowly but surely you realize, oh, there might be some reason we do these things. So this is Wade Paget and I'm Tane Kell. We've now got a jury selected and we are headed to the beginning of the trial and presentation of evidence. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.